Uh, this morning we are in between uh, sermon series. Uh, Dr. Jackson has been preaching the last couple weeks, and I'm filling in today for David. And next week we'll begin our new series, which is All In. And we've just spent the last six to eight weeks talking about being all out. And so we're going to kind of bridge the gap this morning. We're going to stay in Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 15 this morning, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. And we're going to be looking at the external and the internal. So we're not completely leaving the topic altogether. And I entitled the sermon, The Heart of the Matter. And uh, if there are any Eagles fans in here, Don Henley was a drummer for the Eagles, and he wrote a song, a solo song called The Heart of the Matter. And I'm kind of ripping it straight from him. His, his version wasn't intended to be spiritual by any means. So don't read too much into that. But we're going to be in Matthew 15 this morning. And what we have in this passage, just to give you a little bit of background, Jesus is dialoguing and debating with the Pharisees and the scribes in this passage, which is nothing new. We find Jesus constantly bickering with these guys. They are kind of the pain in his side. They represent a strand of Judaism that Jesus is opposed to. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at one of their classic debates in Matthew chapter 15. Now, keep in mind that the main issue this morning is the issue of purity. What makes one clean? That's kind of the the crux of the passage in a nutshell. What makes one clean before God? Jesus, leading up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, has been doing things that the Jews would have considered unclean or impure. At this point, he has already touched a man with leprosy. This is considered impure. He has touched a dead corpse, definitely considered impure, according to Judaism. He has healed a woman with a blood disorder, And so he's been involved in all sorts of miracles that we would consider good things that the Jews were opposed to because of the fact he was breaking rules of purity. So this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15, reading verses 1 through 20. And instead of reading it all the way through, we're going to kind of read bits and pieces, all right? So we're going to start here in verse 1. It's going to be on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever revels father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. I wanted to start off this morning, understand in in verse 2, they're talking about hand washing. I wanted to give you some statistics regarding hand washing, and they're going to be up on the screen, and many of you will probably be disgusted at some of these statistics, but I thought it would kind of help us get in the mood and understand what's happening here. So they're on the screen. Some of these will surprise you. Some of them won't, especially this first one. Up to half of all men, only half. 50%. And a quarter of all women wash their hands after they leave the restroom. So I'm not going to take a straw poll in here, but in theory, if I were to ask the men to raise their hand, only half of them would say that they regularly wash their hands after using the restroom. Right-handed people tend to wash their left hand more thoroughly and vice versa. This makes sense. Whatever dominant hand you are, you're going to spend more time. You're going to have more strength. You might scrub a little bit more with that hand. So we get that one. We have between 2 and 10 million bacteria between our fingertips and our elbows. So this span of right here, up to possibly 10 million. 
Damp hands spread a thousand times more germs than dry hands. So if you go to the restroom, dry your hands off after you wash them. Don't just, you know, wiggle them and let the air out because you can actually spread germs that way. The number of germs on your fingertips doubles after you use the restroom. Obviously, we understand that. They can stay alive on your hands for up to three hours. So even washing your hands, your germs could remain on there for up to three hours. And then the last one, probably the most disgusting, millions of germs hide under watches and bracelets, and there could be as many germs under your ring as there are people in Europe. I don't know what the population of Europe is, and keep in mind, you know, they say 60% of statistics are made up, so this might be inaccurate, but that is a lot of germs. So I would recommend that you take your ring off Man, according to this, we should be taking it off daily and washing it, all right? So the main issue for the Pharisees here is the washing of hands. You see, what they had done is their tradition had trumped the word of God. Now what we find here are that Pharisees and the scribes, they have traveled from Jerusalem into Galilee, not because they were really interested in what Jesus had to say, but more because they wanted to attack him. Uh, Jerusalem to Galilee is about 75 miles. So they've traveled in. Jesus is in Galilee in this scene, teaching, preaching, and they are disgusted at the fact that Jesus' disciples, they spotted them not washing their hands before they eat. And they kind of use a passive-aggressive attempt. Instead of actually going straight to Jesus and saying, your teaching is wrong, they kind of pin it on the disciples because they understand whatever the disciples are doing has been taught by Jesus, Okay. We need to understand a few things about the Pharisees, though, this morning. Keep in mind, they are just a branch or a sect of Judaism, okay? There are a number of sects in ancient Judaism. And much like other groups in Judaism, they believed in one God, so they were monotheistic in their belief system. They also believed in the Torah, like other Jews, so they were strong on the law of God. But in addition to those two things, the Pharisees had what they called the oral Torah. That is, in addition to the laws that were written down on Mount Sinai by Moses. They also had oral laws that were memorized and passed down from generation to generation, from rabbi to rabbi. So these oral laws, we don't actually find them in Scripture, but they are laws that they had transmitted orally. And oftentimes, these laws would elaborate and expand upon what was actually written in the law. So oftentimes, it would be possible that what the Pharisees were teaching was actually not founded straight out of the law. They added on to it. And Jesus is aware of this because he knows everything. He is God. And so what he does is he attacks the Pharisees on two points. He uses Exodus 20:12, which is the fifth commandment. It says, honor your father and your mother. And then to add fuel to the fire, he throws on top of that Exodus 21:17, which says that it can actually be a capital offense to disobey your father and your mother. What the Pharisees were claiming here is what we would call a Corban vow. Certain Jews made vows before God, and these vows were not to be broken no matter what. And even though the Pharisees had clearly understood that we should honor our father and their mother, this vow that they were making, that was called a Corban vow, stated that all of my material possessions were to be given to take care of my parents. And that's what they were supposed to do. But what in fact they would say was, even though it's my job to take care of my parents, I've made this vow before God, and so I'm going to hold on to these material possessions, and I'm going to give them to God when the time comes, instead of giving them to my parents. Which sounds good on paper, except this is a man-made law. This is a tradition that they created. And what actually happened was, instead of taking that money and giving it to the Lord, 
they were keeping it for themselves. So not only were they not providing for their parents like they were supposed to, they weren't giving that money back to God. And Jesus is aware of this. And so he continues to dialogue with them, and we're going to pick up in verses 7 through 9, and I want you to listen closely to what Jesus says to them. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We find in this passage the haunting words of Jesus in verses 7 through 9. The idea that you could honor Jesus with your lips and the words you say, but your heart could be far from him. Haunting words from Jesus. And what we find here is he is beginning to contrast the external from the internal. He uses the lips as the external and the heart as the internal here. And he's setting himself up in 7 through 9 for what he's going to accomplish later on in this passage that we're going to look at when he shares the parables with him. You see, these are sobering words from Jesus here. Not just for the Pharisees and the scribes, not just for the disciples, but for all of us in this room. The fact that we can honor Jesus with our lips, but our hearts can be far from him. See, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm more concerned about your heart, I'm more concerned about your intentions than I am the words you say about me. Let me give you an example of this. There's a recent article written about a month ago from Ed Stetzer, who is a church researcher, and the article was entitled, Is the Church in America Really Dying? It's the name of the article. And he writes that uh, there was a survey released in 2009, you see it up on the screen, the American Religious Identification Survey. And it had two key thoughts that ran through this research. Number one, self-identified Christians fell 10% from 86% to 76% since 1990. So over a 30-year period, the number of people that have professed Christ have actually decreased by 10%. Really not that surprising. As society moves along, we become more of a secular nation and world, and so that's not that startling. But those that profess no religious affiliation whatsoever increased from 8 to 15%. So we have both. We have Christians declining and those professing no faith whatsoever increasing. This caused a panic among some churches and among some church leaders. Newsweek released a huge article. You see the cover right there? The Decline and Fall of Christian America. Okay, so the secular media ran with this. But what we find is, and Stetzer used this research to do his own research. And what he found was, instead of the church in America actually dying like this survey showed and this article writes about in Newsweek, what we're finding is that the church is actually becoming more authentic and more transparent. Now, what do I mean by that? 50 years ago, if somebody were to fill out a survey asking what their religious affiliation is, in America, 8 out of 10 would have claimed Christianity, whether they actually were a follower of Christ or not. It was socially acceptable. It was cultural. Uh, Whether it be for a relationship, for a job, whatever it might be, you were going to write down on a piece of paper that you were Christian because it was the thing to say. But as society moves along and as we become more secular, what this research shows is that people are shedding that label. They no longer feel the desire or the need to put up any type of front and say, I'm Christian. So if they're not Christian, they're not filling it out anymore and they don't feel that pressure. So what we're finding is 
based on this research and this article that Stetzer provided, that the church in America is actually maintaining itself pretty well. And you know what it's also doing? It's actually becoming more authentic and more transparent. We're weeding out some in the church that only profess Christ with their mouth. And what we're finding is that the church is actually still pretty full of committed followers of Christ. Now, we're not on the incline. We're not doing great by any means. But we're not declining as Newsweek and that survey would have you think. We're becoming a more transparent and a more authentic church, which is great news. Friends, let me tell you, what the lost world wants from us is not us having every Bible verse memorized. What they want is transparency, and they want authenticity. They're not impressed necessarily with us knowing the books of the Bible or Bible verses. Those are all great things, but what they want from their Christian friends is authenticity and transparency. They want you to be real. And that's gonna look differently for everybody. But this research has shown us that the church in America is on the path of becoming more transparent and more authentic. And I believe if we were to do more research 10, 15 years down the road, we'll find that the lost world is more interested in the church because we're being real and honest and open with them. You see, the Pharisees were doing the exact opposite. They were honoring Jesus with their lips only, and their hearts were far from him. Let's keep reading on here. In verse 10, Jesus says, And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. You see, Jesus uses two imperative verbs. Listen and understand. It's not a request. It's not a suggestion. It is an imperative command from Jesus to listen and understand. And at this point in the text, it seems to indicate that Jesus has moved away from his dialogue with the Pharisees and that he switched to discussing with the crowd. But we know this isn't completely true because the disciples come up to him a few verses later and say, what you just said in verse 11, of course, they didn't call it verse 11, but what you just said in verse 11, they're not buying that. They heard what you said, and they disagree. And so what we find here is that Jesus is discussing what truly defiles a person. Let me read verse 11 to you again because it's the crux of the passage. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. As I mentioned earlier, the Pharisees are highly concerned with external defilement, external impurity, touching a dead body, healing somebody that is unclean. They're familiar with this. And when Jesus throws verse 11 at them, that rocks their world. That it is not what you do externally that affects your relationship with God, but it's actually internally. Because the Pharisees always believed that as long as they kept the law, they were right where they needed to be with God. But Jesus turns the table on them. And he uses two very, very powerful metaphors here. And the first one refers to a plant that has not been planted by God. 
The Bible tells us that it will be uprooted in this passage, meaning it won't thrive, it won't be successful, it won't last. Ashley and I uh, bought a plant about three years ago. I didn't want a plant. I wanted nothing to do with it, but she wanted a plant. So we went to Home Depot and bought a little potted plant. And it's a low-maintenance plant. It only requires water two to three times a week, and we just stick it in front of a window, and it gets sunlight. Uh, this past summer, we were out of town, or something happened, and we noticed our plant was dying. And so we thought we should expedite the process by which it needed to recover. So in addition to watering it, instead of strictly putting it outside of a window, we put it outside for eight hours. In June, eight hours with a potted plant is a recipe for destruction. And so we got home and we found that we had completely scorched this plant, toasted it. And I'm, I'm happy to inform you this morning that it is quite a resilient plant. And we took it back inside and we trimmed off the dead leaves and it's thriving today. And so praise God for that. But the, the scribes and the Pharisees in this passage are not so lucky. You see, Jesus clearly says, they haven't been planted by me. They're not going to be successful. They're not going to thrive. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower, right? It is only upon the good soil that you'll be able to truly thrive. He takes it one step further. Not only does he say that they're plants that have not been planted by me, but he also says they're the blind leading the blind. What a sad picture for the Pharisees to accept of themselves. Not only are they blind, but they're leading others behind them that are also blind. And Jesus says they're, they're destined to fall into a pit. The Pharisees were missing the boat in this passage. They did not get what truly defiled somebody. And you know who else doesn't get what truly defiled somebody? The disciples. And we're going to finish up by looking at Jesus' dialogue with them. He says in verse 15, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Now, if you have the NIV passage, it actually says, Are you still so dull? So Jesus is basically saying, you're not that smart, okay? Listen to what I'm saying. And so he has to explain the parable further to them because they don't understand it. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Jesus seems highly discouraged that those that are closest to him, his disciples, didn't understand the parable the first time around. That this is a pattern we find throughout the Gospels. The disciples, they just seem to be a step or two behind where God wants them to be. In a lot of ways, the disciples are just like us. There are many times when we're just a step or two behind where God wants us to be. But he seems disappointed that his disciples, especially Peter, who as the leader of the disciples comes and actually asks the question, he seems disappointed that they don't get it. How could they not understand this? You see, even though the disciples didn't get it, and Jesus clearly taught them, I mean, they were this far away from Jesus, and they still didn't understand a lot of his teaching. What we'll find is, even after Jesus ascends into heaven, this issue of what makes one clean remains an issue throughout the rest of the New Testament. Let me give you two examples. In Acts chapter 10, 
At this point, the church is growing. The church in Jerusalem is thriving. Peter is kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he has a vision. Many of you know this story. We learn it growing up. He has a vision, and a white sheet is dropped down before him with all sorts of different types of animals on it. And the angel commands him to eat this food. And what does Peter respond and say? I can't eat these things. They'll make me unclean, or they're unclean. And then God comes in and says, anything that I have made is not unclean. So at this point, Peter, maybe five years later, is still not getting it. And then we look further, Peter again and Paul, we find them at the church in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. Very popular story that we tell regularly. Peter and Paul were dining with the Gentiles, having a good time. Certain men from Jerusalem come up to this church, powerful men with a strong Jewish lean. And what does Peter do? Instead of continuing his fellowship with the Gentiles, he backs away. And he becomes concerned that what these Jews think of me is more important than the fact that I know it's not about what I eat that makes me unclean. You see, the disciples, they never got it. They never understood the fact that the true test of purity comes from within. That is the true test of purity. The disciples and the Pharisees didn't understand it. The Pharisees wanted it to be about what they ate, They wanted it to be about washing their hands, and they so hoped that those laws would get them closer to God. And Jesus clearly tells them in this passage, that's not going to cut it. You see, this morning I'm convinced that even though we believe that salvation is by God's grace through faith, that we know it, we believe it, I still believe at some point or another We try to create some type of external standard by which we think God is pleased with us or satisfied with us, just like the Pharisees did in this passage. They didn't understand that it was what on the inside that matters. Now, that's not a license to do whatever you want in the external, but it's a reminder that the way you live your life should match up with your heart. In fact, Jesus closes in this passage with using six characteristics that come out of the heart. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. You know, four of the six behaviors that he mentioned here come directly from the Ten Commandments. So even Jesus, who is preaching that it's not about the law, knows the law and includes four of the six characteristics here that come straight from it. But what he does in this passage is he turns the table on them. Pharisees, it is not about the external, but it's about the internal matters of the heart. Jesus says these same words earlier in Matthew chapter 7 and the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard this before. He says, many are going to come to me on that day and say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not perform miracles all in your name with our lips? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. You see, it's the heart that matters, not the external. I heard somebody in the early service this morning was saying that they struggle with the external just as much as the internal. And I'm not trying to discount behaving well. 
But if your life matches up, if your external is doing pretty good, your heart should match it. Because out of the heart comes the way we behave externally. And so this morning, my challenge to you, to myself, is that we examine our hearts and that we realize that no matter what we eat, no, no matter whether there's 50% of us men in here that don't wash our hands, that God looks at the matters of the heart. And you can play games with him, you can give him lip service, but at the end of the day, he knows the intent of your heart. Will you bow your head with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and we have an exciting day ahead of us, an exciting event tonight. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would now speak to us during this time of response. Maybe some of us in here are trying to honor you with our lips when we realize that our hearts are far, far away from you. Lord, allow your Spirit to guide us and direct us during this time. Thank you for the words of Jesus in this passage. Thank you for the example of the Pharisees. Thank you for the disciples and what they teach us here. Lord, we are simply vessels that want to be used by you. Humble us before you. Teach us and mold us into who you would have us to be this morning. And we ask all these things in the name of the one that saved us and that loves us and that extends forgiveness to us no matter what we do. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.